Hello, listeners, and welcome to Closing Time, the podcast that provides an inside look at the world of healthcare startups and venture capital. I'm Hallie Tecco. And I'm Michael Esquivel. Each episode, we get the privilege of meeting entrepreneurs at the forefront of healthcare innovation. You get to eavesdrop on pitches that are reshaping healthcare from founders daring to think differently. So pull up a chair and join us as we journey into the future of healthcare, one pitch at a time. Today, we are joined by our VC guests and my good friend, Cheryl Chang, founder and CEO of Vive Collective. Vive Collective builds, funds, and scales digital health companies. Cheryl currently sits on the board of Kiddo, a pediatric patient monitoring company, and Somacare, a prior authorization platform for specialty and medications. And I'm excited to welcome our founder guest today. Sophia Pages is the founder and CEO of Chartala House. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, Sophia, would love to start by asking you to give us just a brief introduction to Chartala House and also to let us know what the light bulb moment was that inspired you to start the company in the first place. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, well, Charla House is a virtual intensive outpatient program that is culturally centered towards the Hispanic and Latina population. What made me start Charla House really starts way back when I was 18 years old. I was born in the United States, in Texas, and raised in Mexico City for my whole life. I moved to the U.S. for the first time when I was 18 and went to college. And during my transition to a new country and uh, being away from my family and college life in general, I experienced a mental health crisis, a severe mental health crisis. I had an eating disorder and a significant pronounced suicidal ideation. My family and I, evidently, we were very worried. My parents came to the U.S. to see, to help me get help. And I, we, we found help through a psychiatrist who told me I needed a higher level of care. He said, you need a residential program um, or a PHP program. And we searched and we encountered several barriers, uh, which led me to end up getting, ending getting care in Mexico and where I lived for three months in a residential facility. The facility changed my life. Instead of studying engineering, I went back to school for psychology. I got a psychology degree and then moved to the U.S. and got my license here. When I moved to the U.S., I always wanted to work in higher levels of care, specifically residentials and PHPs, because I wanted to know what I missed out on. And while some programs were great, I realized that Latinos weren't accessing these places and I wasn't really supporting the community in that way. And I got really curious about why, because payer or insurance providers provide these services or pay for these services, yet Latinos weren't using them. So that's really where the Charla House was, the idea for Charla House was born, providing culturally centered care for Latinos with moderate to severe mental illness who are in crisis or going through a really tough life transition that might need a little bit more support than weekly therapy. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing your super personal story and inspiration for the company. I think having the personal connection is really powerful. I'm curious what sort of lessons you brought from your own experience into building this program, and then maybe just talk about how far along you are in, in building this business. Yeah. So both 
personal experiences professionally in the, the clinical realm. And then as a client myself, I realized that not only the specifically with, with the Hispanic population, we struggle trusting providers. And we once we find a particular, and speaking for myself, once I find a particular PCP or a provider that I feel comfortable with, I will only go to them. And they're my trusted source. And this was, was this is what I noticed was happening to Latinos. They were accessing primary care physicians and then or relying heavily on emergency care uh, because there was a there was a gap uh, that needed to be filled in that space. Groups within the Hispanic community rely on traditional healing methods. So curandero, spiritual healing, herbs, certain types of uh, sobadores or massa uh, uh, specific massages to heal the mind, body, and spirit. And when they come through the doors of a psychiatrist, for example, they're very afraid of getting medication. They're like, I don't want to take that pill. I'm really um, scared. My mom says X, Y, Z. My cousin took one and she changed, like her demeanor changed. Like, I don't want to do that. And what Charla House is trying to do, in addition, part of our clinical programming is offering both traditional healing methods and evidence-based care for moderate to severe mental illness. So what that looks like is we're providing clients with a roadmap with different options so that they're empowered to choose and make a, a, a medical choice that aligns with their values and with what they want. So they can they can choose to mix and match. They can choose to go one route versus the other. And we're going to support them with whatever they choose in a way that, that supports their overall health. Where we're at right now is we are, or Charla House is still in early stages. We're working towards getting our first cohort of clients. Uh, one barrier in this sector is that in order to be able to get a network with provide or with insurance companies or, or providers, because I, I function as an IOP program, I need to get I need to get a Joint Commission certification to be able to go to providers. So right now I'm marketing directly to consumers and trying to build that first cohort of clients. We're open, but st still trying to build this cohort to test all of our all of our systems and our resources, our data collection, assessment collection, everything. And to be clear, when you say going directly to consumers, you're currently focusing on the cash pay segment of the market since you don't yet have the certification you need to work with health plans? Correct. And what that is looking like, we're offering um, very uh, comprehensive uh, sliding scale fees to get clients into to our services. And we're also um, trying to work, um, once a client comes in, we're trying to get support them if they have out-of-network benefits in doing all of that, advocating to get the, the, their, their program paid for. So, Sophia, what, what does the intake process look like then uh, when a consumer signs up with Charter House? Uh, how, how, can you just walk us through that experience? Yeah. So, I mean, it starts if whether they're on the website or calling us directly, they fill out a pre-assessment uh, screener or form that 
then our admissions clinicians reach, reach out to them and they conduct a very comprehensive assessment to determine if we are the right place for them. In terms of not only acuity, but also uh, certain symptomatology. For example, right now we're not um, equipped to provide care for active substance use or active eating disorder because we don't have the, the, the infrastructure and in, in, in clinical background for that. And once they get cleared by admissions, they get assigned a, a team. Um, they get assigned an individual therapist. They work with our, our health coaches, nutrition coaches, and they get assigned specific per groups that are tailored towards their presenting struggles so that they're better in tune, not only in each group, but also with whatever they're struggling. So if, if, if we have uh, groups of moms who are struggling with postpartum depression or OCD or any sort of anxiety disorder postpartum, we're grouping them together. If we have folks that are struggling with more suicidal ideation, self-harm, we, we might group them together. Um, so we're really creating a schedule, a program schedule that is best aligned with them. And house is in the name. Is there a physical location that people go to and stay at? Or are they coming in for these sessions at certain times? I love that question. So we're all virtual at the moment. We're all virtual. House is just meant to convey this this warm space for them for them to come to. In the future, maybe we'll we'll be able to have or partner with community centers for folks who maybe don't have access to a maybe quiet space while they, while our programming is designed for them to be able to do it at a park with a set of headphones or a computer, uh, or whatever it might be. One day we hope that we can connect with community centers for folks to be able to have spaces to, to join programming from there. So Sophia, I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the decision to do more group programming as opposed to one-on-one, -on -one, or are there also aspects of the program that can be one-on-one -on -one patient to provider? Yes, 100%. So our program is comprehensive in that it does include two individual sessions a week at the beginning of programming with, a, with, a, with the client's therapist. And um, in addition to the two sessions a week, they have group sessions and what we're calling coaching sessions with either spiritual coaches, nutrition coaches, or health coaches in general. And there are touch points with their psychiatrist if they're on a psychotropic regimen. And the reason why we are, or why I believe so much in IOP programming. So in a way, I'm not reinventing the wheel in terms of IOP programs already exists, that the, the, what I'm bringing into this space is really a culturally centered, tailored programming. And what I really believe in is a community aspect of an IOP program, where when somebody's really struggling with a more moderate to severe mental illness, sort of it sort of feels like all of your outside world can start to crumble. And being able to connect with folks who are going through the same, or just have that as that community aspect and that support and that in a cohesive uh, bubble can be really supportive to then launch back into the community and be able to support others as well. Yeah, Sophia, one of the things Hallie and I have seen, and I know Cheryl, you encounter this quite a bit in in your experience as well, is when when you have these types of business models, sort of how do you think about the providers here? Are they employees of Chartla House or are they independent contractors? 
Yes. So the goal would be that all employees, sorry, all providers would be employees of Charla House. Um, one thing that I've seen, and I've bared the brunt of this also as a provider in in places like the, in programs like like these, is the high level of burnout. And if I can have providers be employees and have them have low client caseloads um, to support the acuity and support their own mental health together with great time off uh, support uh, for mental health and self-care, we can really create a, a community that is not only supporting clients, but also preventing therapists from leaving, right? Like I've been in and out of treatment centers working as a provider and left, like left halfway through treatment uh, for some clients, which was extremely difficult for me, but also it was part of part of part of the this, this shift, and I think that impacts client care a lot. So yes, my my idea would be to have all uh, providers be employees. So I think the burnout provider burnout problem is pervasive across you know so many different areas. Aside from kind of a lower patient panel or a smaller patient panel, are there other? aspects of maybe integrating technology or other things that you're thinking about to still allow that higher level of access while staving off some of the provider burnout? Yes. So I'm currently looking at some, it's, it's a particular um, AI uh, program um, that helps Based on the clients, based on on the clients' report that they type in, um, this this model helps uh, diet support with a diagnosis, but also with symptomatology to help uh, group folks within acuity. Um, in addition to that, um, there are also great systems that are integrated into assessment programs or protocols that can help once a client completes, I don't know, for example, a weekly assessment um, on their certain depression symptoms. Um, the technology has gotten really well, really good and strong so that when a client is experiencing a higher increase, for example, in suicidal ideation, the whole team gets uh, pinged and notified before an actual crisis develops. So there's a lot of, there's less putting out fires when the heat is really high, if that makes sense. Um, and, and that helps, or I'm hoping that is, that is going to help bring down uh, the stress levels at the team that the team may experience from the night calls or the, 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 the crisis moments. But it still sounds like this is at, at the core, a services business tech-enabled, but services business. When I think about scaling services businesses, and Cheryl, I'd love for you to chime in on this, really consistency and quality is the hardest piece. Like, how can we clone you? Like, you're obviously a very successful therapist and have, you know, helped served a lot of people. So how do we ensure that high quality that has made this founding product so successful? How, you know, how do you carry that on in a way that is consistent amongst everyone that you hire eventually. And Cheryl, I'm, I'm curious what, what kind of you see when scaling services businesses. Yeah. So I, I, I know we're on a, um, we're on a podcast to talk about venture and, you know, venture investing in startups. But I, I actually think that given the fact that you have clearly identified your population, your population has a clear unmet need and you're going to meet that need with services I actually think that it would be 
potentially dangerous for you to raise a ton of money up front. And actually, because you are services, you technically can be profitable on every single patient that you see. As a company, it's going to take time. But I think where services sometimes fall down is when they try to scale too fast and go to too many geographies too quickly. And to Hallie's point, like you end up watering down the quality of your service. And at the end of the day, you're develop you're delivering healthcare to people who very acutely need it, right? And you don't want anyone to fall through the cracks because quality gets compromised for the sake of growth. And once you start taking in a lot of money from investors, they're going to focus on growth and sometimes at the expense of quality and just profitability even. And so I would just be very careful because you're building a very much needed service for a population that doesn't have it and just be very deliberate in figuring out, like even within Texas and California, those are huge states, right? You might want to isolate Southern California only, or, you know, like, cause you get scale by going into local markets. And once you develop that trust, the community talks to each other and they're going to say, Hey, have you, have you tried Sharla house? Like, you know, like my son went through this or my daughter went through this. And, and that trust is the best thing that you could have for in venture terms, like lower cost of acquisition and like all of these things that we care about. But really at the end of the day, it's about your ability to deliver high quality all the time. So I know that's not the maybe most popular thing for VCs to say, um, but I think you've identified a very specific population and delivering that service, I think, is more important than growth at all cost. Cheryl, what a masterclass in VC motivations. I mean, I hope <laughs> don't you, take my money. Listeners, I hope you appreciate that everybody. masterclass there. That was amazing. I don't think all things should be venture funded from the from the very beginning, <laughs> right? Like I, I, I think that could be it could be detrimental to your long term success. Um, and especially since you come from a provider background, like you know what quality looks like. You should feel good about that. To kind of follow up on that, because there are probably a lot of listeners that, you know, are are deciding if they want to raise at all or raise right now when it's not that easy. And I'm curious, you know, if if you don't, you kind of have to sacrifice doing all the things that you want to do, building all the things that you want to do, hiring all the people that you want to hire uh, because you don't have that cash. So you have to really go about it in a much more lean way. Are there other sources of capital that you would recommend small business loans are there you know other ways that someone can really get off to the right start by investing up front in the business or is it just like you got to bootstrap um i wish our listeners could see your face right now Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh um well she's so, like shit you got to bootstrap <laughs> no well okay so I, I i actually do think bootstrapping is a very viable thing. And there may be certain markets that you can go into with actually grant money. Um, Cause I think that there are organizations and foundations specifically either targeting mental health and or supporting the Latino community where they would actually be very willing and eager to support what you're building because there is this 
very clearly identified gap, right? So I think that that is, that is one thing. And it'll also allow you to address populations that cannot do cash pay. Because I think that there are populations will be like, yes, like, tell me the price, right? And you can do a lot of pricing analysis to figure out, like, am I undercharging, overcharging? But really, if you want to get to the people who we're trying to give them care, even if they're not able to do cash pay or don't have the Mercedes of commercial insurance, you may be able to backfill that a little bit through grants and foundations that do support this community and then just be tracking outcomes all along. Right. And maybe there are SBIR grants and things that you can get, but you have to, you have to track those outcomes, which I know you're very early in that process. So, you know, we're, we shouldn't talk about outcomes now, but as a provider, you know exactly what you would want to track and making sure that you're doing that. And it doesn't have to be with the newest AI technology, right? Like it can be on traditional tools that you can be tracking outcomes. And at the end of the day, the outcomes are the thing that matter the most in in healthcare. It lends itself really to really interesting questions around what are the legal considerations when you're not going down a traditional venture path, right? I mean, you know, is there a lawyer in the room that can help us answer that? <laughs> you know, how to keep, how to keep things simple. Uh, w- one of the tendencies when we, especially when we think we're going down a traditional venture capital raising path is to, is to get complicated quickly, right? In your legal structure, in your composition, in your approach to all matters legal, But when you are going to bootstrap, when you're going to try to keep things lean through NIH grants, SBA grants, et cetera, I think, Sophia, one one of the pearls of wisdom to think about is, you know, keep it simple. I noticed uh, in pulling your certificate of incorporation from the Delaware Secretary of State website, which no, I you did, which I, which I <laughs> You're did, such a stalker. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, you, you've kept things really clean, right? It's a very simple structure. You authorize 10 million fully diluted shares of common stock and, and, and you've kept it very straightforward. And I would encourage you until you decide it makes sense to go out and raise venture, to try to keep it that way. So, for example, if if you, in addition to grant money, if you do decide to raise a little bit of friends and family or even angel-style money, uh, l- let's do a straightforward, safe, or convertible note. Let's not create complexity today because that'll give you flexibility tomorrow when you do decide, hey, I'm going to go out and raise an institutional venture fund from a great venture investor like Vive Collective. And so just want to be mindful of that and, and try to really err on the side of keeping things streamlined, keeping things simple, all with the goal of preserving flexibility and optionality down the line. The benefit you have in services, and Sophia, I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious to see what you're seeing in the market is these patients have to be referred in, right? Like, so you are working with, I would imagine, largely PCPs or sometimes ED departments, or where do you think the volume will come from? Yeah. Surprisingly, my hypothesis was that I would get a lot of PCP referrals. I, I don't have a lot of data to say this confidently, but what I have noticed is that a lot of PCPs, A, don't re- sometimes don't know like w- who would be a good candidate for an IOP. They first refer to the first line of care, which would be outpatient, for example, or a psychiatrist or, or regular outpatient service. So right now, my main um, 
referral source are emergency rooms, hospitals that have a psychiatric wing or psychiatric, um, that have a psychiatric hold, um, folks that evidently like their case managers would need to provide them with a plan for aftercare where Charla House would be a great option. Um, because Charla House, not only is it a great step down option, but it's also great a great preventative, op preventative option for folks who need to remain in school, need to remain in work, um, but they need a higher level of support. And that's where I still haven't figured out how to access those folks that can that need that step up versus that step down option in terms of reference. Um, so primary therapists are also a great option to reach out to and connect to because they have clients who maybe are struggling a little bit more and they can provide referrals. Um, but that step up option has been a little bit more difficult to, to crack versus a step down need. Right. Right. Yeah. I could, I, I could see that for sure. That's interesting because then even though I know this is not long-term scalable, but even as you're gearing up for, you know, a potential future raise, it's understanding, demonstrating that you know how to build that playbook in that flywheel. And, you know, even if it is in a, in a local area, like one county in Texas, getting aligned with all of the providers and informing them, like, you know, making it very easy for them to refer out to you and showing that like, okay, the first patient maybe took three months after we got first contact with the provider, the second one only took two months, then, you know, now they just keep coming and being able to show those, I mean, we, you know, cohort curves or whatever they are and figuring out what those touch points are. Cause it is also, I think, interesting because you have the ability to build partnership with these providers and, you help them serve a need that they actually have no resources to address right now. So that is another way that you can potentially get some customer financing or, you know, maybe you call it like channel financing because um, <laughs> then you can build up these, these groups before you have to hire your next provider. And so you know that once that person, once that provider comes on board, they basically have a third of a patient panel or half of a patient panel, like locked and ready to go. So that might be a, a more efficient way, but yeah, the step, the step up is potentially more challenging. Um, that might be yeah. further on the roadmap. And on that note, Sophia, you said that you really struggled during college, right? Mm -hmm. Have you thought about going to universities and supporting young adults? Yes, um, I have. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of cold calling health centers, university health centers, to let them know about Charla House. A lot of health centers have really, I don't know how to say it, but they've, they've partnered with other providers that provide outpatient services for college, for college students. Um, so my, my, and this I started to realize more more recently. My other option is also reaching out to those that are already providing the services to let them know about about Charla House um, as a um, adjunctive service. I was also thinking about your recent, ther I'm blanking on the name. Therify. Um, Therify. Yes. Um, he was, um, he, I thought of him, like he, his, he would be a great referral source for folks who yes. are, who are needing, who might be 
I don't know, have a job and have a really difficult life transition. Maybe they lost a loved one or yeah. fill in the blank that might need a little bit more support. They we could can be make a the great... intro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trust is such a foundational piece of the entire business model, Sophia, as you, as you uh, mentioned. One of the questions I'm getting in this really difficult time that founders are encountering with the macro being so uncertain, with the venture market in, in many ways being closed to, to many health tech startups, do you have a mentor, a coach, someone you rely on that you view as a trusted resource? Yes. Um, I, well, maybe I, I should mention this. I'm also, I've, I'm realizing that I need um, a lot more support and a lot more help. Um, I wish to find a co-founder uh, soon um, okay, that great. would be interested in in Charla House um, and be willing to to do what I'm doing and sort of like risk or make this leap of faith. So I am looking for a co-founder right now. Um, I've, I have a business advisor. Um, his name is Daniel Marcos. Um, and he has been a business advisor, uh, business coach, uh, for many years. Um, and he's been, he's been supporting me, um, on this journey. But again, we've, we've come to this sort of like realization that I need, I, I need more support and I, I, I would love to have somebody on my team to be, to join me. Well, Sophia, I got to tell you, a co-founder is such a, a great idea here to have another sounding board and another partner to help help uh, pursue this mission. It's important, though, to, to realize, again, in keeping the cap table simple the way you've done it, bringing on a co-founder now from an equity perspective is something that can be done relatively easily. We can still get them, get her or him, uh, their equity at uh, at a nominal price. And that's really important if you're going to be, if this person's going to get 5, 10, 15, 20% or more of the cap table uh, to be a, a true co-founder. So being mindful that because you haven't raised venture, traditional institutional venture money yet, you don't have a preferred stock round on your cap tables structure today. We don't have the same limitations that section 409A applies uh, in in these scenarios. And so you'll be able to issue restricted stocks similar to the equity you got in your founding. Uh, and uh, that individual will just have to pay a nominal price per share, which is super, super compelling. And it's a huge recruiting advantage for you to have because they get to get in in a business that you've already largely laid the foundation for. Lots to do, lots to build on that foundation. But she gets to join you as a co-founder at a relatively nominal price and build qualified small business stock value, long-term capital gain value, and, and do it by buying their stock outright. So this would be an ideal time in my mind to, to find that partner, to find that co-founder who can really be that, uh, that, that equal chef in the kitchen with you. How do you vet that though? Because if, if we're making a call for all listeners that could be interested in being a co-founder, <laughs> reach out to Sophia. But what should Sophia do to ensure she picks the right person? Because you are so in the trenches with your co-founder, this relationship. If you haven't worked with them previously, things that don't show up in a week of getting to know them, but show up six months later in an intense work environment could crumble the company. What's your guys' advice on that? I mean, it's better to have a co-founder than not a co-founder, I assume, but the wrong co-founder is worse than no co-founder. Like, what, how do we think about this? Cheryl, that's one, a good one for you. Love to hear your perspective. Yeah. 
I mean, it's so hard, right? Because I think being a founder is such a, can be such a lonely endeavor a lot of times. So I think one is figuring out what are the skills that you have and what are the skills that would be really complementary, right? So whether that is technical skills, like, you know, like, do you need a CTO or more of an engineer? So like, there are certain things that are easy to map out because you have that, but I actually think you have to do a lot of founder dating and you have to take the time and not rush into a co-founder relationship where you're, you know, it can't be something that you do in a week, unless it's somebody that you knew earlier in your life in, in, you know, whether that's in college or in your first like couple jobs where you're like, I've seen this person work. I absolutely know their work style. And most importantly, I think it's their conflict resolution style. I think is very, very important. And um, that's where, you know, there are, all, are definitely going to be dark times in any company and you want to make sure that you can be very open and that you guys are aligned on values. I know none of these things sound like things that are, you know, core to a company, but I think they're actually very core to a company. I think more companies die because of organizational behavioral issues than they do because the code doesn't work, right? Like that, I feel like that, that can always be fixed. Such, such a great point, Cheryl. I think, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, co-founder tensions and co-founder uh, disagreements can, can be fatal, even if the tech and the business and, and the product are all working. So uh, it's, it's great. Yet another masterclass bit of advice from Cheryl Chang. So I will say one thing that's going to be very controversial in today's day and age, but like, I think if you don't have a co-founder right now, I would try to pick one that is physically close to you location wise, because I know everybody's like, oh, distributed teams and like, you know, we're distributed organizations, but like, if this is your co-founder, somebody who you might give up to half of your company to, like, you need to be like with them all the time. And I just don't see how big problems can be solved if you're bringing in a co-founder, if you guys can't be together all the time. Um, I think that would be different if it's someone you've worked with in the past and you have a long track record with them. But otherwise, I would err on someone who's in the physical proximity of, of where you are, where you live. I don't know. I, I know a lot of people think like, after COVID, that genie is out of the bottle. But I think for a co-founder, you have to be very, uh, you got to stare the person in the eyes all the time when you're having those hard conversations. So, And it's important to put a vesting schedule, Sophia. You must have a vesting schedule, a four-year vest, one-year cliff on your co-founder shares for this reason. I mean, you'll know within three, six, nine months if it's working out. And the beauty of having a one-year cliff to see if there is those, those synergies do exist between the two of you, the ability to navigate disagreements and, and differing points of view will all play out. And I, I think one of the common mistakes I see founders make all too often is they decide they're going to be fully vested and wait to negotiate a new vesting schedule as part of their first institutional priced round. And at that point, it may be too late if, if your co-founder decides, ah, forget it, Sophia, you're not a good fit for me. And she decides to go sit on a beach in the Bahamas and they've got fully vested <laughs> equity, you're, you're going to be working for them. 
So, so it's really, really critical that you, in addition to Cheryl's excellent observations and points here, that you make sure we, we put vesting. Everybody should be on standard industry vesting in order to protect the company and everyone's incentives and alignments to work hard. Because it's going to be a, it's going to be a great ride, but a tough one. Great. And with that wonderful free legal advice, um, <laughs> Michael and I, thank you, Sophia, for joining us. And Cheryl, thank you for lending your VC voice for closing time. This is it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, guys. And that's closing time for today. A huge thanks to our partners at Fenwick for underwriting this show. Recording, editing, and audio mixing by Kyle Moore. Thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And check out our website, closingtimepodcast.com, for more exclusive content. Until next time, this is Hallie Tecco and Michael Esquivel for Closing Time. 